Under current law, the next election will be in 2020. No ifs, no buts, no snap elections, no changing the law. Under you, is that absolutely certain that we're not going to see an election before I'm, 2020? I'm, I'm not going to be calling a snap election. I've been very clear that I think we need that period of time, that stability. I have just chaired a meeting of the Cabinet where we agreed that the government should call a general election to be held on the 8th of June. So here we go, the nation decides again. Doesn't matter whether you've got a serious hard-on for politics or you're someone who runs a mile at the mere mention of structural deficits. On June the 8th, each of us will have an equal say in determining where the United Kingdom goes from here. All you need to do now is take a deep breath, listen objectively to the arguments on all sides and figure out what the hell's been going on for the past 12 months. Easier said than done, though, right? We thought so too, and that is why we decided to make this little explainer podcast. Obviously, in 40 minutes, we're not going to be able to cover everything, but we'll try and get through all of the big stuff and get a balanced outline of the challenges and choices facing us in this election. Who's going to be running the UK? That decision is all yours. And mine, partly. Why has Theresa May called this snap election? Well, I think it depends whether you believe Theresa May or or not. That's Professor Philip Cowley, political scientist at Queen Mary University of London. Theresa May's version of events is that uh, with the Brexit negotiations coming up, she wants a decent parliamentary majority in the House of Commons. She wants to try and unite the country behind her, and that strengthens her hand when she's negotiating with other European countries. If you believe most people, I think they think she saw a opinion poll lead of about 20 percentage points. Politicians are obsessive users of opinion poll data. Uh, And there were plenty of people on the Conservative benches noticing not just that they had a lead over Labour, but that the lead was increasing, almost to the point where it was reaching historically unprecedented levels. And I think there were plenty of people who thought this is as good an opportunity as it's going to get to have an election, win a large majority and damage the Labour Party. Now, in, in one sense, both of those things may be true, but you pay your money and you take your choice. So is is the idea then that with her current parliamentary position, if just a few Conservative MPs don't like what she's doing in the Brexit negotiations, then that will really weaken her hand because they could vote against her effectively? Yeah, she, on, on paper, she has a majority in the House of Commons of just 12. So it only needs six or seven Conservative MPs to join with the other parties and they can defeat her on various measures. And you already saw that before the election was called over national insurance uh, when she had to retreat because there were not enough supporters on her own side. So a bigger majority gives her more room for manoeuvre in the House of Commons. I think that bit's certainly true. In the short term, actually, for me, it has more to do with her domestic policy. Robert Colville, editor of CapEx and author of The Great Acceleration. She came in on David Cameron's manifesto. So every time a government gets in, it has a list of things it's promised to do. And it turns out she doesn't agree with that many of them. And she's got quite a lot of things she wants to do herself, like bringing back grammar schools or raising national insurance on the self-employed. She wants to have her own mandate. She wants to have her own authority over her party so that she's not just colouring in the lines which have been drawn by someone else. I mean, she has her official justification, which is that she needs to increase her majority. Abby Wilkinson, journalist and political commentator. 
which I, I think is pretty unclear to me why that makes a difference. Just because if you look at Greece, they had a massive majority. It didn't make the EU take the demands any more seriously. Certainly not. I think she will be worrying that, you know, they potentially reduce their vote share or even and anything other than kind of a decisive victory looks terrible because they came into this so strong and, and Labour came into this so weak. I think the recent YouGov poll gave them five points difference. It's been at 24 points. For any reasonable measure, she's had a disastrous campaign. This hasn't gone well for her. And it doesn't really give you confidence in her leadership. Anyone tuning into politics for the first time will very quickly hear the terms left-wing and right-wing banded about as either an insult or a badge of honour, depending on what your tastes are. But what are left and right, really? And are these terms still relevant today anyway? Most people on the left look at inequality as it stands and they think it's not a reflection of what people deserve and how hard they've worked. They, they think that people are poorer and richer often because they've had better or worse life chances and they believe in redistributing to try and make things a bit more equal and to give people better opportunities. It's, I mean, it's not just about that. that there's people who are economically right-wing who just think it has better outcomes for the economy as a whole. That They'd argue that, you know, it would be nice, it'd be nice to have more public services, but if we tax people, then they'll leave the businesses abroad and all of, all of this. Uh, left-wingers are more likely to believe in investing. I think kind of Labour's policy, it's funny, it gets presented as this really radical platform, but actually, by international standards, it's quite moderate and seen as common sense, really. Economically speaking, the right-wing position is that the best engine of prosperity and growth that we have is the free market. When people trade with each other, when people exchange goods, we all get richer. That The best way to improve performance of the public services, for example, uh, or any service, is to have competition between them, is to allow customers to have choice. For my money, it's been proved again and again and again over the 20th, 21st centuries that the freer you are, the richer people get. I mean, you look at North Korea versus South Korea as a classic example. You know, When they start off, North Korea is actually richer than South Korea, and now South Korea is as rich as us, and North Korea is the poorest and most miserable place on earth. Back in the 17th century, there was a tale about um, an island called the Fernandes Islands in the Pacific. And Petifer, economist and co-founder of policy research in macroeconomics. And about how some dogs and wolves were left on this island. And of course, there was a limited amount of food on the island and they scrapped like crazy to grab what food was available. And economists at the time said, well, this is how the market should work, you know, because ultimately the dogs and the wolves came to some sort of equilibrium. They came to carve out space for themselves on the island. And the theory is that if you just leave the invisible hand of the market to, if you like, clean up, you know, there'll be winners and losers, but, uh, you know, at least you'll have some state of equilibrium. That's the theory. In fact, what's happened is that, of course, there are far more losers than there are winners, and that's, that is what has led to this very high levels of inequality. My interpretation of what we're seeing at the moment, the big, broad trend of what British politics entails, is that we have suddenly shifted from a political culture in which right-wing economics were accepted by both parties and left-wing social and cultural ideas were accepted by both parties, to one in which the exact reverse is happening. Here's Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? So the economic debate on the Labour and the Tory side has shifted markedly to the left, 
but the cultural and social debate has shifted markedly to the right. We are no longer seem to be as socially liberal as we were before, no longer so open to new cultures, to new ideas. We're closing that down. There is always a broad division between the Labour Party broadly on the left and the Conservative broadly on the right, but the exact positions that they take on issues change from election to election. And so, for example, the Conservative Party at this election is putting forward some policies which the Labour Party put forward two years ago, for example, interfering in energy markets, which two years ago was a Labour Party position and was therefore broadly seen as being on the left. The Conservatives are quite happy to appropriate that position this time and put that position forward. We all have very strong partisan filters. And maybe the best example of this is a study which a friend of mine did where he showed people pictures of a cat and he asked them whether they liked the cat except half the people he told the cat belonged to Tony Blair and half the people he told the cat belonged to Margaret Thatcher. And he found really big differences in how Labour supporters viewed a cat if they thought it was Tony Blair or Margaret Thatcher's cat and and how Tories saw it, depending on whether they thought it was Tony Blair. So if you're a Labour supporter and you're showing Margaret Thatcher's cat, you don't like the cat, but you like it if it's Tony Blair's cat. Now, if, if you can change someone's views of a cat based just on who's the cat belonged to, then imagine how that same partisan filter works when you're presented with the details of a policy that you don't really understand, but your party is putting forward, or a leader who you've never actually met. We all carry bias, we all carry baggage, and we're better off just accepting that. The vote to leave the European Union was the biggest political decision made by the UK in over a generation. More of us showed up to vote in last year's referendum than in any election in our nation's history. A democratic tour de force. But why did we vote the way we did? Was it the traditional battle of left versus right, liberal versus conservative? Or did the Brexit vote reveal a new political divide in the UK between those who are winning and those who are getting left behind? I actually agree with people who say that we're looking at and we're, we're living through a huge realignment in politics, um, away from left versus right. Sam Bowman, Executive Director of the Adam Smith Institute. I think we're moving towards a sort of communitarianism versus globalism. That is what we're witnessing in the developed world. So this is the kind of somewheres versus anywheres Somewheres versus idea. anywheres. This yeah. idea that some people, the idea of a community and the idea of a sense of belonging somewhere, and um, whether or not uh, they that's the sort of most economically beneficial. You know, they might be a bit poorer because of that, but they don't mind. Versus anywheres, people who are more footloose, they're happy to move around. What well, For them, it's about kind of living their, their lives as individuals. And there's no right answer there. Those are clearly both kind of valid choices and valid preferences in life. But, you know, Donald Trump, I think, really exemplifies this because what he does have is uh, a very, very strong kind of nationalistic uh, attachment to kind of Americans, you know, against the world. This idea that when you trade with China, because China gets rich, America must be getting poorer. That I think is a very, very powerful ar- idea that that uh, is very appealing to people. You know, Marine Le Pen, um, the sort of National Front candidate in France, represents the same thing. And I think what we will witness um, is basically the death of the traditional left. I may be proved wrong, but I think that the Labour Party is probably does not have a very bright future. And that kind of traditional trade union-based, working-class kind of leftist approach probably is not going to be that that viable in the long run because a lot of those voters don't have this attachment to globalism or internationalism that people like Jeremy Corbyn match with quite hard-left uh, economic policies. I think Brexit 
while it may have been anti-European, I think it was about the domestic economy really matters more than the global economy. And why will our politicians not pay attention and develop and invest in and expand employment, housing and so on in the domestic economy? Why are they so preoccupied with the global economy and with global interests? That's fine for the City of London, but it's not for the rest of us. It's a nationalist sense, a sense, please, let's worry about our home country and not just about the global economy. And that can turn into quite ugly nationalism, but it could also be about, can we please invest more in our jobs? And I mean, I think the voters in the American Rust Belts are saying the same. You know, maybe we're not opposed to modernization of the economy and innovation and so on, but for goodness sake, why not invest in upskilling us and enabling us to deal with this fast-changing global economy? Instead, the politicians are throwing their hands in the air and saying, sorry, but the market will do that, you know. So I, I feel that was what Brexit was about. Back to the present. Where does each party want to take the UK from here? June the 8th has been dubbed the Brexit election, a time for the nation to decide on who we want to lead us as we lock horns with the EU in the upcoming negotiations. The Conservatives and UKIP are committed to leaving the EU and the single market. Labour are a bit hazy here but seem to be leaning towards this hard Brexit option too. The single market is just an economic club in which people, goods, services and capital, which is basically money, can all move freely between the member states. Essentially, a company registered in one country can flog its stuff in any other member country without facing any barriers to trade. The Liberal Democrats and the Green Party, on the other hand, want to keep the UK within the single market and have promised to hold another referendum on whether to accept any Brexit deal. But who's right? Who has the best plan? And who is best placed to lead Team UK as we try to negotiate the best possible deal for ourselves? What's happened is that a lot of people have looked at May. She's almost inscrutable. I mean, she's trading on the absence of policy. And by virtue of that, it all becomes about her personality. The only real detail we have is leaving the single market and the customs union. That's in the manifesto. Um, and, you know, we're not going to have any more European Court of Justice jurisdiction. Now, that final part, I very much doubt she'll be able to satisfy. And if she does, it will be because we will be having one of the hardest, most chaotic Brexits imaginable. That is, it's kind of a red line for them as well. So really, she's not giving us any proper detail as to what she's pursuing. What she's saying is, trust my judgment. And Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit policy has somehow magically become even less detailed than that which is being offered by Theresa May. He'd just be asking for you to trust his judgment as a lefty and, you know, to protect workers' rights and all of that. There is just one difference, I think, now between the Labour and the Tory position. And that is that in the Labour manifesto, it says that it is not viable for there to be a no-deal outcome. Now, that's potentially a huge distinction because at the end of two years, Theresa May's message is, it's my deal. Whatever I present, or it's nothing, or we're out on no deal. Now, no deal would be, it is hard to properly, properly express how catastrophic that could be for, for Britain and for the quality of life of the people within it. So that is a big distinction there. But ultimately, in terms of whether it's a hard or soft Brexit, Labour and the Tories are in exactly the same position. If we just simply had businesses uh, trading with each other on a voluntary basis, German, uh, German car producers, you know, tr trading with UK consumers, we wouldn't be worse off. Professor David Blake, director of the Pensions Institute at Cass Business School and author of Brexit and the City. Uh, we have a £90 billion a year deficit with the European Union 
Uh, that means that they sell £90 billion pounds a year more, more to us than we sell to them. And on any rational basis, we ought to very rapidly have a, a free trade deal that preserves uh, the trading between us and the rest of the European Union member states without any tariff barriers, non-tariff barriers, quotas, and all the other restrictions that, that, that countries impose if you're outside uh, a, a customs union. It would be perfectly possible to have a free trade arrangement in two years. We could take the Canada deal that's just been struck, the Canada-European trade deal. You could do a cut in pace on that. You could change Canada for the United Kingdom, and you would have 99% of the trading arrangements. But John Cord Juncker took out that document uh, at the dinner to the Prime Minister, laid it on the table and said, there are a thousand pages here. It's going to take 20 years for us to uh, um, uh, do a trade deal in the same way that we did with Canada. That's ridiculous. That is completely ridiculous. You know, apart from the Lib Dems who have gone all in on the idea of sort of hard remain, and it surprisingly hasn't actually translated into support. I think a lot of people, myself included, who voted remain kind of just want to get it over with now. And for Theresa May on Brexit, it's not just a question of not trying to alienate different voter bases. Some voters who voted Brexit want a very hard Brexit where we basically don't have any deal with the EU. Most voters want some kind of deal, but the more you get into the nitty-gritty of that, the more you're going to alienate people. You're not going to bring people in by giving details. You're going to alienate people. But more importantly, I think, for Theresa May, um, is her own party. The more specific she is about this, the more she risks either alienating the hardcore Leave people who really, I think, would like to just not even have a negotiation with the European Union and the sort of much more reluctant leave people who wish we weren't in this position at all. The main thing for me is I believe that Labour will protect things like employment rights when we no longer have EU law saying we've um, got to protect them. Because our Brexit minister, David Davies, he's been desperate to cut young people's employment rights for years. In 2012, he was saying we have to do it because of the financial crash. Now he's saying we have to do it because of Brexit, whereas Labour has traditionally been the party of workers. It's funded by trade unions, and I think you can trust that it's always going to have workers' interests at heart much more, because it has to. Britain, like much of the world, is facing a powerful long-term trend. Our society is getting older. We're all living longer. And for each individual, this is a good thing. Who wouldn't say yes to a longer life? However, when you zoom out to society as a whole, a problem appears. With more non-working, older people depending on working, younger people to foot the bill for their care, the sums just don't add up. To fix the system, Theresa May and the Conservatives have proposed a new plan for elderly care in England. It's complicated and much of the detail is yet to be fleshed out, but it can be summed up quite easily. They want people to pay more for the cost of their care but we'll wait until you die before taking it from your estate. And your estate is just the total value of everything you own, including, crucially, your house. Is this the right strategy, or are there better alternatives out there? Well, I thought that that was a very brave attempt to introduce for the first time in this country an element of intergenerational equity, recognising that we have a social contract between generations and that one generation cannot take out too much. And, and, and the generation that we're talking about has benefited hugely from huge capital gains on its houses that are simply not 
you know, justified by any skilled investment performance or anything like that. And they're being asked to pay for the care costs if, if they, if they uh, are suffering from some long-term care problem like dementia. Now, it, with someone like dementia, it, it can cost £100,000 a year in, in care costs. And what they're saying is, what the people who have objected to this uh, are saying, well, we don't want uh, uh, our children to pay for us, but we're very happy for the children of other people uh, to pay our £100,000 care costs. We want to be able to pass our houses on to our children. Well, that is not really uh, a good sense of intergenerational fairness at all. It is funny because... Although I know it's a really unpopular policy, inheritance tax done properly is something I actually think it is going to potentially become quite necessary. Social care is going to get more and more expensive. Yeah, it, more it's people a problem need it. that needs addressing, isn't well, it? It's a problem that needs addressing, but there's no reason that the cost should be put only on families who are directly affected. Because if you do that, then the risk is that you get people who need help and they don't get the help they need. They don't go and access that help because they're worried about depleting their kids' inheritance. Um, or you might even get people who don't get the parents the help they need because they see their future money trickling away. It just sets up such perverse incentives. Um, the problem with the Tory solution, which is that the rich should pay, is that if you own a £1.8 million house, say, and your health care is... £200,000, you were left with a £1.6 million house. If you own a £300,000 house and your health care is £200,000, you're left with £100,000. Now, we know that dementia uh, is quite arbitrary in the way it affects people. But what you what what is so very regressive about the 1.8 million person versus the 300k person is that that's a form of taxation and it's a very regressive form of taxation. The person who is in the poorer property is far more worse off. The person in the rich property is is hardly hurt. But I suppose the most unfair element of it is the fact that who of us knows whether we're going to have dementia or not. One word in particular stood out in Labour's list of manifesto pledges, nationalisation. If elected, they plan to take the rail, water, postal and energy supply industries back under the control and ownership of the state. Much of this key infrastructure was sold off to the private sector in the 80s and 90s under Thatcher. The argument back then being that privatisation would make these industries more efficient and productive and therefore benefit both consumers and the economy with lower, more competitive prices. Jeremy Corbyn disagrees, claiming the benefits of privatisation have flowed mostly to the shareholders of those companies and that the taxpayers have lost out in a big way. Labour's solution? Time for the people to take back control. The ideas that took over under Blairism and the fall of the Berlin Wall and all these sort of this great shift away from left-wing economics were never really accepted by the public at all. I mean, polling never really changed on that. People want nationalised utilities, nationalised transport. Nobody wants nationalised restaurants and T-shirt companies. You know, I don't think anyone's going that far. But most people want their utilities. They've never really understood why gas and electricity should be in private hands because it's not a real choice, right? I mean, it's not like when you buy a T-shirt or go for a meal. There is no real choice that no one can really be bothered to sit around trying to figure it out. Just like during back in the day, you know, you'd get Tony Blair on the New Labour would always go on about 
you know, your choice of where you want to get your hip operation. Nobody wants that choice. It's not shopping. You know, you just want it done right, basically. That, that's all that is required. Like Rails, particularly, is a natural uh, monopoly. It's not, it's not genuine competition. You can only have one, one train. track. Yeah. yeah. So it's basically, all that happens is you get companies bid for the government contract. It's not, it's not a true market in any real sense. It, when it, and when it's a natural monopoly, it makes sense for it to be under state ownership. We, we have gone through the whole privatisation um, business with, with all those industries, and that brought us great benefits. And I think that one of the big problems with nationalisation, um, perhaps people's memories are too short. Professor Patrick Minford, economist at Cardiff University and member of pro-Brexit think tank, Economists for Free Trade. Civil servants who, who were in charge of these nationalised industries didn't feel the pressure of needing to make a profit. And indeed, you know, because these were nationalised and therefore politicised, the objectives of the nationalised industries became very blurred and so they became very inefficient. That was the big problem. What Jeremy Corbyn would say about privatised services is that actually all of the money ends up going to the shareholders and it's just run in the interest of the shareholders rather than the users. Well, I think this is a misunderstanding of what uh, of how capital gets deployed. I mean, the shareholders provide the capital and they are simply being given the return that shareholders require. And if the government does it, it's still going to cost it the same because it's going to have to find the capital and uh, raise it through borrowing. During the EU referendum campaign, the issue of immigration turned out to be a key vote decider. And in this election, there's a clear divide again. It all hinges on the figure of net migration. So that's the number of people migrating into the UK every year, minus the number of people migrating out of the UK. And net migration is actually surprisingly tricky to measure accurately. But over the past decades, the figure has consistently been somewhere between 200 and 300,000 net immigration. The Conservatives have pledged, not for the first time, to get this number down to the tens of thousands, so less than 100,000. And UKIP are promising to go even further and bring net migration down to zero through their nightclub-style one-in-one-out policy, ladies free before 10. Labour is committed to ending freedom of movement with the EU once the UK leaves the single market, while the Lib Dems and the Green Party, on the other hand, have pledged to keep this freedom in place. But which policy is best for the UK? It's a lot easier to understand Theresa May's policy stances if you realise they've got very little to do with what's actually bad or good for the country and everything to do with what makes a good soundbite or a good headline. She knows that there's a proportion of voters that she's trying to appeal to. Often ex-UKIP voters that she's trying to... She's effectively managed to win back for the Tories. That, that's why they're polling so well, because the UKIP vote has basically collapsed into the Conservative vote. And she thinks this sort of policy will appeal to them, d- despite being nonsense that's bad for the economy. You know, you even take the tens of thousands pledge on immigration, and this is being made again and again. David Cameron, you know, political absence that he was, put it in one manifesto after basically saying it by mistake at one point. Then he, after knowing he can't deliver on it, because of course, this is net migration. So even if he could have controlled immigration from the EU, he can't control how many people leave the country. You just made yourself a hostage to fortune by doing it like that. Then he does it again in 2015. Now Theresa May's put it in there. Now the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, says this would cost us probably tens of billions of pounds in income. There's a really simple reason for that, which is that we have an aging population. 
The human life economically works this way. It costs a lot of money at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning, it's on healthcare and education. At the end, it's on pensions and healthcare. In the middle, you're your working age. You contribute to the treasury. That's where you, you know, contribute money back to the state. It's basically a down payment on what comes later and, you know, paying back the fees of what came earlier. We have too many old people in this country. I don't mean that in the moral sense. I just mean it as an economic sense. You know, there's just too many old people. We have to pay for them somehow. We have a massive skill shortage. We have a productivity problem. The way to do that is with immigration. You bring in people of working age. This is the crucial part is you skip the bit at the beginning of life where you have to pay for all the stuff. So they get trained up. You know, they have all of the healthcare costs paid for by another country at the start. We get them at their most productive. And then, you know, about half of them go home for the expensive bit at the end. So it's a net economic positive for us to have immigration. It is not a long-term solution. You can't just keep on flooding. Keep shipping people in. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You need to build up productivity in the economy and your skills shortage. But it buys you time to do that. That's the crucial thing. So if we were to stop and suddenly reduce immigration in tens of thousands, we would have a skills shortage, we have a productivity problem. We would basically either have to massively cut public services or massively raise taxes. It's really hard to tell voters that they shouldn't be that worried and that they're deluding themselves. But that's essentially what we did. So you know, when Labour decided in about 2000 that when the Eastern European countries joined, we were just going to let them into our job market. And they were expecting a few 10,000 or so people to come. And they got hundreds of thousands. But even as the, the numbers went up, people who said, hang on a second, this is a problem, were still being told, you're a racist. And especially you know, and the Conservative Party, especially, it was a great election tactic. You know, when the Conservative Party said, we will restrict immigration, Labour went, well, you're racist then. And that kind of worked in 2001, it worked in 2005. You know, the, the, the flip side to this is that immigration is a problem of success, that people want to go to Britain because we have jobs, which in many European countries, especially, they, they, they don't. And you get paid an enormous amount by local standards while you're at it. The way in which our immigration system works is it for, for non-EU people uh, is the way in which it'll probably work for EU people. We basically let in skilled people who have a job here and we restrict quite severely the numbers of unskilled workers because they, you know, don't contribute much to the economy and they will, they will get, in the longer run, they'll get benefits which will cost the taxpayer money. So the solution then you think is to not get them in from the, the EU or, or indeed from outside the EU, but to get British people to do those jobs? Yes, I think that's right, you see, because... What will happen will be that the wage for those jobs will rise and they will be done by British people to a large extent. The wage will go up and they'll be more attractive. And to be honest, there isn't a country in the world that lets in unskilled workers from outside that has a welfare state. You see, this is the big problem of the welfare state. University tuition fees were first introduced by Tony Blair's Labour government in 1998. But the shit really hit the political fan in 2010, when the Conservative Lib Dem coalition announced that annual fees in England were to be trebled from three grand to nine grand, famously breaking a key Lib Dem manifesto promise to abolish them entirely. Currently, graduates begin to pay back their student loans at a rate of 9% of any income above £21,000 a year, and whatever unpaid debt is left after 30 years is written off completely. In this election, tuition fees have again become a battleground, with the Conservatives and the Lib Dems pledging to keep them, while Labour and the Greens are proposing to scrap them. UKIP also promises to abandon fees, but only for the most able students studying for degrees in science and technology. So who's thinking clearly? 
Yes, it's a naked attempt to call the UFO, and it's also quite a stupid one. We've seen this in Scotland, where they've done exactly the same thing. It's a massive redistribution of wealth to to middle class and rich students. I went to university in the days when you had to pay a thousand pounds, and my God, we kicked up a fuss about that thousand pounds. We were, you know, oh my, you know. But obviously, the benefit to me of having gone to university is massively greater than that thousand pounds. I do feel sorry for people who've graduated since with with higher debts, but the fact is, there are there are kind of quite a lot of people who can afford to pay that much over their lifetime, and you know, who will get that amount of value out of it. And just giving them free tuition seems like a bit of a strange thing if you're trying to help the poorest in society. Uh, and if you were going to be spending that money on education, where would you put it then? Um, personally, um, early years education. I mean, uh, the gaps between rich and poor start to emerge at sort of quite an early age. There is this real problem at, at the bottom end. And I think, for me, that's where we should be targeting resources. Now, since bringing in tuition fees and, in, and since, since increasing tuition fees, the bottom sort of fifth of the country in, in economic terms has actually gone has been more likely to go to university. Um, there's been a drop-off in very kind of wealthy people going to university, perhaps because it's not free. They have to think about and they actually have loads of other options. They can work in their family business or whatever it might be. But it's, 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 it's simply not true that it has disincentivized people from poorer backgrounds from going to university, which is a good thing. What we're doing now is, an, is really amoral in a sense. We're burdening people who have no income with debt, young people. I belong to a generation which benefited from grants and benefited from the ability to go to university without an overhang of debt. And it was liberating for us and it ought to be liberating for future generations. The people who (laughs) need to be put back in a cage, if you like, are the finance sectors, the creditors that are making so much money out of this. And lots of money, big, big money. Interest rates on student debt, in my view, are usurious. They're really high in real terms. I mean, the other thing about it is that um, we fund, the government funds student loans anyway, and then people pay them back when they're earning if they can afford it. So in terms of upfront money, it's not actually taking any more from the public purse. Yes. And, and you know, you, we, we're going to be taxing these people as well. If, you know, people go to university, they get a good education, they enter the workplace. If they are really successful, they become higher rate taxpayers. Productivity is not everything, but in the long run, it is almost everything. So says Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman on how the productivity of a country's economy is what fundamentally improves people's standards of living. Productivity is the average amount of income earned per hour spent working. And according to economists, it's a critical measure of how well or badly your economy is doing overall. OK, so how does the UK fare? Well, abysmally, actually. Although the UK employment level is quite high, our productivity, our output per hour, is one of the lowest. Breaking all this down to something real, it means that French and German workers could essentially stop working late Thursday afternoon and still get the same amount done as a Brit who keeps hammering away until Friday. So can we do anything about this? It's a very simple reason that we fail to invest. We fail to invest in our workforce, we fail to invest in new kit, we fail to invest in improvements to our economy. And British investment has been low and in decline for a very, very long time, relative to, for example, the Germans or the Chinese, or the Chinese way ahead of us, the Japanese. So they invest in their economies and in their people to upgrade it. We think 
that investing in people and in upgrading our economy is expensive. It's much easier to take the money and gamble and make a quick buck. You know, go and gamble on the stock market or gamble on whether or not this price will rise by margin and then that margin. That's an effortless way to make money. And the other reason why investment levels are low, it's because our economy is dominated by the finance sector that true entrepreneurs find it really hard to raise finance, affordable finance, for innovation and investment. And so they don't. I think you cannot understand the huge political earthquakes that we saw in 2016 without putting that in an economic context of the longest period of wages not rising in, in, in real terms, inflation-adjusted terms, since the 1930s, if not earlier than that. Um, this, is, this is kind of unthinkable up until, up until 2008. This, this long period of stagnation is, has really been unthinkable. Everybody up until that point had, had been used to constantly slightly getting better off, a little bit better off every year. I actually think that we are living through the most important technological leap since the Industrial Revolution or since the, the, the kind of late 19th century second Industrial Revolution where, you know, steamships and refrigeration and stuff changed the world. But when it's, what's interesting is when you look at that period, growth was actually very slow. It was actually historically very slow because in addition to all these railroads and, and, and steamships and all these huge technological advances that sort of made the world globalized for the first time, you had huge disruption. My view is that we are living through a very similar phenomenon with automation and with artificial intelligence being the big drivers of this. We are seeing the same kind of disruption that's causing Trumpism and Euroscepticism and so on also mean that traditional ways of making money and traditional ways of of being an entrepreneur are no longer sufficient and are no longer really going to work. At the 2015 general election, the gap between old voters and young voters' turnout was massive. Just 43% of 18 to 24-year-olds went to the polls, compared with 78% of people aged 65 or over. That's a massive gap, 35 percentage points. And that wasn't always the case. As recently as 1992, the gap was just 12 percentage points. And the difference here isn't that the old are voting more, it's that the young are voting far less. You gotta fight! And if the young really did hit the ballot box in a big way, could it change everything? The problem is that on an individual level, as one individual in an electorate of about 40 million, your vote probably doesn't count very much. And I think most voters kind of know that. And some voters think, well, therefore, I won't bother voting. The problem is that collectively your vote can matter. The obvious example of this is why do the party manifestos contain quite so much protecting the interests of people over the age of 55? Because there's a lot of them and boy, they vote. So yeah, one old person, they vote, don't vote, doesn't matter. But collectively, they have power and politicians listen to them. Uh, and the same thing applies at every other demographic group. One young person doesn't vote, doesn't matter either. But the reason they tend to get a raw deal is because they don't vote collectively. I think my own view is we'd be better off being honest with people. It's not about your vote. Yeah. You as an individual don't count, all right? You have almost no say because there's millions of you, and you have about as much power individually as one person does out of 40 million. But collectively, you do. Still don't know who to vote for? 
One thing that I find useful are voter advice applications or VAAs. So these are online tools that ask you a series of quick questions to determine where your values and preferences lie and then they match you with your best fit party. And these are already big in Europe with up to 40% of the voters in the Netherlands and Finland consulting a VAA before they cast their vote. So check out sites like isidewith.com, take the test for the UK election and see what you get. And if you want any more information, I actually wrote a book, Howzy, about British politics in 2015. A lot of it is still relevant, so check it out if you like. It's called None of the Above, and it should still be available online. Right then, hopefully that all made some sense and will be helpful when it comes to making your decision on the 8th. Enjoy exercising your democratic right. It's a good feeling. Trust me. This podcast was a Radio Wolfgang production and it featured me, Rick Edwards, talking to Ian Dunt, Anne Pettifer, Professor Philip Cowley, Robert Colville, Professor Patrick Minford, Abby Wilkinson, Professor David Blake and Sam Bowman. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley and the executive producer was Colin Roach. Fucking nailed it again. God, I make it sound so easy. Keep all this in. Yeah. <laughs>